0: Intensely Inquisitive, the podcast that searches for answers to life's big and not so big questions from the people qualified to give them with your host, Orion Kelly. Hi, and thanks for taking the time to listen to Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly. At the core of this podcast is a desire to understand things on a deeper level, to know more and ask why. My purpose is to empower you with knowledge, education and growth opportunities through open, honest and inquisitive conversations. In this episode, we explore the topic of death and ask the question, why don't we talk openly and honestly about death? My guest is Ajanta Judd, a qualified counsellor, therapist and death doula. But before we get to Ajanta, I'm joined by my wife Renee for a chat on death from her perspective Renee, thanks so much for joining me. No worries. This episode, we are exploring the topic of death and asking the question, why don't we talk openly and honestly about death? And I want to ask you that question outright, but but first, just a, a quick recap. Your perspective on death is a little different for different reasons. So people that may or may not have listened to the episode of Intensely Inquisitive on miscarriage and near death, it featured... Uh, yourself, my wife, Renee, mm-hmm. about your experience with an ectopic pregnancy, which not only meant you lost a pregnancy, but you almost lost your life Absolutely. and you had a near-death experience. And, you know, if people haven't heard that episode, go and check it out. It's a, it's an extraordinary near-death story if you've really got to hear. So there's that perspective, which was mm-hmm. you had a near-death experience and that changed your view on death. And then there's also personal perspective of family and there's also – your professional role as a as a doctor, as a geriatrician, and geriatrician meaning a doctor that looks after people pretty much over sixty five. So, That's right. you, you kind of have this very, <laughs> this very different, and complex and eclectic uh, view on death. Without me putting words in your mouth, with all those things put together, how do you actually view death based on all those? Variables.
1: I think my views changed greatly over the years, um, but at the moment, I'd say I view death as just part of life. That it's something that's ine- inevitable, yeah. inevitable for <laughs> um, for everyone, regardless of their age or background. Um, and the sooner we start talking more openly about it, the sooner that it becomes less taboo, and that people won't fear it as much as a lot of people do.
0: So this is the big question. Why do you think that we don't actually talk openly and honestly about death? You've mentioned fear.
1: I think it's also – so it's fear of the unknown. People that haven't had a near-death experience don't know what it's like to be close to dying or undergo the dying process. So not knowing what to expect is one thing. I think the other thing is that because we don't talk about it, then there's so much – Negativity and so much um, mystery surrounding it that that makes it perpetuates the problem of fear around dying. But then also, I think we just don't want to talk about things that are uncomfortable, and dying remains an uncomfortable topic because we just want to enjoy our life and living. We don't really want to focus on things that are are inevitable but are difficult to talk about.
0: And you talked about the feeling, um, people that have near-death experiences, you know, and people that don't, don't understand or get the feeling. So you're saying as part of your kind of near-death experience with your ectopic pregnancy, you're saying that you actually experienced the feeling of dying?
1: I experienced... I think some people might say it was spiritual or whether it was actually just because I was so unwell because of the medications. But I experienced feeling warm and calm and I remember seeing figures that weren't in the room and also um, just feeling like the room was really bright and light. But I never remember feeling scared. And I think prior to – so when I was unwell with the ectopic that had ruptured, I felt really frightened to to a point and then – when it when i was being taken to the operating theater
0: when you're in effect dying
1: yeah absolutely um that's when i just felt calm and at peace and i wasn't fearful at all so i think that really altered the way i think about death and dying because I'm not fearful of dying because I know it's not a painful, horrible thing, especially with today's modern medicine. So if if someone, for instance, is dying of a chronic disease or from cancer, we have so much medicine that we can give people to make things comfortable so that the pain from their condition isn't causing them to be suffering when they're dying.
0: And for those listening who might be thinking, yeah, well, it's okay for you, doc, because, you know, your job has made you literally be in the room of people dying, watch people pass in front of your eyes, be there with them or treat people or, you know, as a, as a physician, you know, you would see people who over a period of time, you know, you would just get an email or a note. Oh, this person's passed. You know, Mm -hmm. you were a part of death a lot and people are going, yeah, well, it's okay. for you, it's been your life for those people that are thinking that and saying that, you know, what, what are the things that you've taken from all those experiences that would help us that the kind of you know, you've obviously seen a lot of people die you've obviously you know treated a lot of people being a lot of the people who you know who are at the end of their life we have helped people uh, get through the end of their life what are the things you've taken away from that and, and how we should view and interact with, with death
1: well I think death itself is something that we shouldn't fear it's I know that everyone still doesn't want to die. Of course, of course, we all want to live and enjoy our life. But I think the main thing to take away from all my experience is that it doesn't have to be something to fear. It doesn't have to be a painful, terrible experience that scars you for the rest of your life. It can be just a time to celebrate the person's life and to spend time with family, grieving, remembering, um, and just enjoying each other's company. When, we, when I talk about this, it makes me think of a book that we bought our son Conan um, to try to help deal with the fact that my mum is dying of cancer um, called The Memory Tree and it's about a story about a fox that essentially goes into the forest and dies and where it dies, a tree grows and then all the animals come around and they sit around and they share stories about the fox, about all the good things that they shared with the fox.
0: As they share stories, the tree grows more.
1: Exactly, so, yeah, yes.
0: It starts off as nothing and...
1: And I think that's a really powerful book and really we can take a lot from how much energy we put into making children feel comfortable with dying but do it in an adult version. So I think the book is a great way to say, look, the more we talk about the person, the more we keep their memory of them alive like the tree growing in the book of the fox. Yeah. So I think that that would be my main take-home message about death and dying.
0: Our son, Conan, who's five – spoke about death in a more healthy manner than your adult family.
1: Absolutely. Because he's got no um, preconceived ideas or concerns about talking about it. He just openly says, well, when I die, I'm going to become a a whale or whatever it is of that time. Because I guess as a family, we haven't really said, well, this is what happens when you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell or you get reincarnated. We've really just left it all as an open-ended conversation where he can decide whatever he believes in. And I, and I think that's fine. Everyone is going to have different beliefs surrounding death as
2: Absolutely. well. Absolutely.
0: And he asks us those questions and, you know, what can you really say? Mm. And I think what's really interesting is, you know, with your own personal experience, you've mentioned about, you know, your mum. From an observational point of view, it seems like your family, your extended family, and I guess us included, um, have kind of been a part of an experience with your mum where I don't feel like there's been open, honest conversations, and for one reason or another. But what do you see as the the benefits? And I guess we know the benefits from seeing the reverse. What do you see of, of the benefits of talking about death? and and what kind of things do you encourage? family members or patients or to talk about with regards to to death.
1: I think from my professional side of things, so as a geriatrician, when I'm diagnosing people with dementia, which is a terminal illness, so people usually live an average of five to seven years after they're diagnosed. So I start, the initial conversation is always about the disease, but then as time goes on, I start talking about death and dying and talking about advanced care directives when a person can still actually make these decisions. Um, So I think talking about it and using the word death and dying is really important instead of passing away or going to the other side or yeah. some Crossing other over. Yeah. funny phrase that makes us feel more comfortable but doesn't actually acknowledge the elephant standing in the room. Kick the bucket, by the farm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's so many stupid sayings. So I think using the word death, yeah. <laughs> I think using the word death and dying leaves no room for people to not understand what you're saying. So I think there's so many times where doctors, particularly in the field where they're always treating people, say like oncologists or other specialties where people are dying but they're still having active treatment, they won't mention the word death or dying for fear that the patient patient might say, think that they might have given up on them or or some other term like that. But really, we need to be embracing that and saying, look, palliative care, death and dying, well, palliative care isn't just when you're actually actively dying. Palliative care is a treatment of symptoms. And that includes from earlier in your disease when you've got pain from cancer or when you've got um. Problems related to a condition that aren't reversible, well, that's like a palliative approach to that condition. And so if we talk openly earlier, instead of waiting until someone is dying in ICU or they're at the point where they can't have conversations, then we're more prepared and then it doesn't become as a shock to us and the family. And then the whole experience is totally different.
0: And people can miss out. Once you reach that ICU point, people can miss out on their wishes because you know the family members are chiming in and doctors are like well guys show us a document You know, show us a document we can't just do stuff because you say we want to do stuff you yeah know? So it makes it really tricky definitely that kind of leads to a, a really interesting <laughs> question about death and dying from a medical point of view because non-medical people might frown upon just the sheer nature of prolonging life that the medical industry potentially has turned to and I know that it's a no-win situation for the medical industry because people come to them and they want to be fixed Mm. and then people kind of moan that people are being fixed and they're living too long. It's like you can't have it both ways, guys. If you you as a person want people to fix you so you can enjoy your life, you can't moan about people being fixed and prolonging life. But Mm. to talk a bit about the idea that we're prolonging life now in not just – to make someone live to 105 but we're prolonging life now even people in their 60s 70s 80s when when nature is at a point where they will they will die they could die and we're doing things potentially for other people i mean what what do you think about the whole idea of the prolonging of life in the, in the modern day it seems like everyone has access to it or it's helping.
1: i think it's very controversial because some people will have very widely varied opinions about this I makes me think of that um, Louis Thoreau um, episode that we watched recently, which was talking about people that were in comatose states that were living in aged care for years, which were essentially not able to talk, not able to eat, being fed through a tube, having a breathing machine. That no, was all really just for the family members, really. Exactly. So I think in Australia, we at least, that's not a practice that I see very widely. So in Australia, we, we definitely do offer treatment to people that would otherwise pass away. But we don't generally keep people in comatose states for years. Generally, the conversation would have been had prior that, look, mum or dad or whoever's not going to wake up and it would be better if we stop doing this treatment and we just focus on comfort measures. Yeah. So I think...
0: Taking it down a level. Yeah. We're still prolonging life down a level. Down a level... Yeah, it's not so severe. It might not be spoken about, but it seems like it's something that we
1: It's definitely true, and I guess this is just my personal opinion: is that there, there is a point in everyone's life where you actually do have to die of something, and right. you.
0: And it's okay to die.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so I, I personally think that. It's about balancing quality and quantity. So for a lot of people, me included, I'd rather have great quality of life and have a certain level of function rather than just be alive and be in a bed and not be able to do anything. But I'm I, who am I to judge what quality of life is? So your quality of life will be very different to my quality of life of course, and yeah. that's why it's really important to have these conversations because – I won't accept being on dialysis for the rest of my life, but for someone else they would accept that. So I can't say, well, that treatment is completely incorrect for you because that might be something that you desperately would want to have to prolong your life. So I know my answer is really grey and mumbly-jumbly, but I think that's unfortunately what death and dying is like because it is such a personal thing. I think the other thing is that we have to be really careful not to be ageist. So just because someone is eighty or ninety doesn't mean they shouldn't be offered a treatment. It should be based purely on what their level of function is, what their comorbidities are. There's
0: ninety-year-olds who are more healthy than me, probably. I mean, well,
1: there's there's definitely ninety-year-olds living at home that should still be admitted to intensive care because they've completely functionally fine and they have normal memory and thinking. So I think age shouldn't be the cutoff and it shouldn't be related to like disability. So for instance, some people would say that people that have severe disability shouldn't receive treatment so that they would pass away and that's very controversial as well. But of course everyone deserves the option of having treatment if that treatment is not futile. And that's where listening to the medical profession is important because they generally have experience about whether the treatment is going to work or not. And so yeah. just treating someone because you can treat someone if they're just going to die anyway is probably not in the best interests of the person. Yeah. And that's usually a decision based more around what the family or the caregivers want more than what the person would have wanted.
0: And I think what's really important about this conversation, when we say we should talk about it openly and honestly, we should also talk about it when I say honestly, in an honest fashion that people – might not be comfortable with for example death isn't pretty death isn't something that happens of old age of you don't course. you don't die of old <laughs> yeah, age no you die thing. of something and usually that's something isn't it isn't pretty to go through so we have to do you agree we have to be more honest about actually dying because I still hear mm. people say you know i my hope is to to die comfortably of old age and go in my sleep kind of thing and So from a medical point of view, for starters, you can't die of old age. You're dying of something.
1: Absolutely. So usually you die of a heart attack or a stroke or something like that in your sleep if if that's related to the sleep issue. There's always a medical reason to die. No one just dies because they're old.
0: And it's not something that people should... Hollywood movie eyes, kind of, you know? No,
1: no, definitely not. And I think, look, I found it really confronting the first time I saw um, somebody go through the dying process and die and had to certify a a person that had been deceased. So I think it's hard to see someone dying because they do change the way they look, their their colour changes, the way they breathe changes. So there's lots of things that are different and confronting, but... The thing to remember is the person is still the person that you love or care for and just because they look different doesn't mean they are a different person. And certainly when I've done um, palliative care work in the past, We always encourage people just to talk to the person even if they're unconscious and they they can't respond because we think, we think, we can't really prove, but we think that people can still hear you up until really close to passing or dying, I should say. So we definitely still encourage you to keep talking to them just like they're the same person, even though they might not be able to talk back to you.
0: Yeah, okay. And finally, given death is really the ultimate fear of most people, clearly, can we ever really remove taboos and fears around it. Well, I mean,
1: I think we can. Yeah, I think we can. And I think the fear is more because people usually have some kind of regret or some kind of um, thing that they're hoping to still do. So I think people fear it more when they're younger and then than they do when they're older. Often where I see a lot of my patients say, look, I'm having a great life, but I, I'm not really afraid to die anymore. I'd be happy if I died tomorrow. That would be fine. So I... I think from my geriatrician background, I certainly see a lot of older people that have come to terms with the idea that they're going to die. But maybe I'm seeing a skewed population because they are older people and they've had 80 years of life and so they've done everything they've wanted to do versus the 60-year-old that still has all these aspirations that they haven't got to achieve and therefore they're fearful because they are going to miss out on doing what they wanted to do.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a great point full circle back to your near-death experience, which taught you to enjoy your life and just do what makes you happy and not worry about other people. And I think that's the main point here. Fear of death really can probably, to an extent, come from the idea you just haven't lived your life right. And that might not sound nice, but I'm, I'm basically saying to you, you know, if you if you fear death or feel like, oh, but I've got to do this, as this, this, my question is, well, why haven't you done them? Just do them. That's kind Definitely. of that's the lesson. Definitely. You know, we try to live our life doing what makes us happy, doing what we think's best for us, trying things, trying things that we're passionate about, knowing that we've given everything a go so we're not going to be, you know, in our rocking chair at 80 regretting a thousand things and too old and frail to do those things. It's, mm. it's kind of ridiculous to keep saying I'll travel to that place later I'll do that when, you know, once I've married and had two kids and I've got done my job for 10 years and got my long service leave up to the balance and it's kind of ridiculous, mm. just do it. I, I think and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree that that type of mentality is intertwined into this kind of fear of death.
1: It definitely is. How can it not be? Because if you've done everything you want to do and you're content, then why would you fear leaving? Yeah. You wouldn't.
0: I guess the point is if you think about, oh, no, I, I, I couldn't die, I've got blah, blah, and blah do. I think it's a great exercise. Do that. Imagine that you're you know you've been given a terminal illness and you're going to die. Imagine. Write down the things that you you desperately wanted to do before you died, and bloody do them. Mm. Don't wait. It's just it's I think it's a great exercise from the idea of the fear of death. Is there anything else you wanted to you wanted to add about the conversation around death?
1: I think the only thing I would add is that you're never too young to do an advanced care directive. So there's a law that's changed in the last 12 months around advanced care directives. So now there's two parts to it, one that is completely legally binding, which you have to do with a healthcare professional and have it witnessed, um, and the treating team that's looking after you have to abide by that by law. And then there's another area which is more to, to do with your actual wishes. So I'd like this music playing, I'd like these flowers, I'd like this to be wear this when I die. So I think anyone can do that. And it's a document that you can easily change and have witnessed again. But if you don't do that and you don't tell people what you want, then you're probably not going to get what you want because no one can read your mind. And generally, by the time that you're at that point when you're that ill and you're going to die, you can't think straight. And I think that's right. Yeah. We had this perfect example like with my mum who was in intensive care um, a month or so ago and we thought she was going to die and despite all my best efforts over the last few years, I have not been able to get her to complete an advanced care directive. It seems to be that it's too confronting for her to think about it.
0: And it couldn't have happened in that moment because she, she, wasn't. she wasn't able
1: to do it. So, it's far easier to do it when you're well, when you can think straight, when you don't have all these other conditions weighing down on you, and then just put it away and forget about it. And if you change the way you think about the world, then you can change the document. But the sooner you do it, the better. And you don't have to be 80 years old to do the document.
0: (laughs) And just saying, no, but I told my partner isn't a good reason because in the heat of the moment, your partner might not remember, might be stressed, or might not actually do what you said.
1: Yeah, your partner People might change. say, yeah, I want to keep her alive. <laughs>
0: People change in the moment, guys. So, yeah. and, and there's also will situation. You can put oh, things yeah, in definitely. your will too. you know. So I've, I've made sure my family get another one last holiday to Hawaii to put my ashes around. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really important that we talk about it openly and honestly and we, we take advantage of the things that are there to help us like. Advanced Care Directive. So I hope this conversation has helped get people talking. Hey, Renee, thank you so much once again for your time.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: That was my wife and geriatrician, Renee. Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intensely Inquisitive as we explore the topic of death and ask the question, why don't we talk openly and honestly about death? My next guest, Ajanda Jard, is a qualified counsellor, therapist and death doula. Ajanta, thanks for joining me.
2: Thank you, my pleasure.
0: Now, before we kind of dive into the topic, let's just uh, mm-hmm. find out a bit about you. Would, could you like to tell us a bit about you and some of the things you do?
2: I'm involved in many things. I'm a qualified counselor and therapist and I have a particular slant with that therapy a, like I've a photograph in in Buddhist psychotherapy. I am a practicing Buddhist but in a spiritual sense, not in a religious sense. Other things I do as as an adjunct to the counselling and therapy, which I actually don't do a lot of at the moment because I'm involved in other things, but I am an end-of-life consultant or a death doula. And a death doula is like the other end of the scale from a birth doula. A birth doula is like a midwife, a non-medical person who this person at the birth to support that person. And basically a death doula is at the other end of the scale supporting the dying person or the person that's just been diagnosed and their family or loved ones. So that's part of what I do. So I have a huge creative sense and I'm an avid photographer and I'm a poet and a writer and just before we spoke today, I've been preparing or photos for an exhibition. Also volunteer locally in Cowes uh, at a, a venue which is part of the community centre. It's called Women Connect, and that's a business hub for women returning to work and um, who might need help with resumes and cover letters and even clothes to where to interview. And apart from that, there's probably many other things that I... I do along, along the
0: way. Well, apart from that, I'd say, my goodness, it's an extraordinarily fascinating and uh, intertwined and busy and a, a very, uh, I guess, complex life you live. And it, 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 it is extremely fascinating. Now, obviously, today's conversation is, you know, more focused on you know, the, the topic of death and dying. And you, you spoke about uh, yeah. your, you know, a role as a, a death doula. So, look, for those listening that might not exactly kind of have come to grips with what it is, do you mind just expanding on it? So, as you said, with regards to say a birth doula, it's like a non-medical role where you know you're there and you kind of advocate and support the the person mm-hmm. uh, going through it. Just expanding on death doula, it's obviously an interesting idea because not. You know, not everyone um, is is exposed to death at many stages in their life. Some people are exposed mm. young and right through the life. Others, mm-hmm. somehow, you know, a bit like breaking an arm, you know. I mean, I've broken a couple of bones and other kids, other people I know in their adult life, never broken a bone in their life. So it's, it, I, yeah. I guess death is a bit the same. So what do you see as the main, you know, kind of role of a death dueler? And tell us a bit more about the, the role we don't
2: know about. Okay. So first off, I Tend to use more end of life consultants because death doula is a term that not a lot of people uh, understand or have heard about. it. even birth doula is a throwback to say a hundred years ago, or even two hundred years ago when that was commonplace. I forgot to mention that I also run an event called the Death Cafe. Now. That goes hand in hand with end of life work, death bulling, in that death cafes are designed to um, break down the taboo around death and dying. And in present day society, Western society, in Australia, death has become quite a taboo subject. You know, we try, unless we're dealing with it face to face, most people do not want to talk about it. But there is a groundswell of buller type people, end of life, Reporters that are actually trying to break down that stigma. There's a stigma around death, because some people think that they're going to live forever. They just don't want to think about it. People have an attitude towards even writing a will that that the, the suspicion is that they might die if they write their will. So it reminds them about death. And death tours, well, the death cafe is about broadening awareness of issues around death. In order for people to live fulfilling lives, because if we walk around being fearful of death, we're not fully living. And quite often it's unconscious. So the death story comes into it in that we can um, support a person from first diagnosis or even a person that's starting to feel ill. Many people are alone and many people live alone. Or they don't, they have family a long way away. They don't have any close friends or relatives. And regardless of that, we can support a person right through their journey from diagnosis through to the dying process through to death and post death. Also, I mean, not all deaths are slow and onward. Some are very tragic, some are very sudden. So when that's happening, families are dealing with If someone is dying of cancer, for example, families are dealing with, they're overwhelmed because they're dealing with all the the medical protocols, all the allied health, all the treatment, all the medicalisation of death and dying, and they're floundering around. They're dealing with emotions that they haven't felt before. And a death doula can come in and hold the space, for want of a better word, it's being a calming presence for people when they're struggling, including the dying person. But it's more, much more than that. Um, it can be an active role, as I said, you said before. It's a non-medical role, but it, it also can be an active role. It can be a role of advocacy when it, someone is ill or dying, or the family don't have the wherewithal or skills to. Um, and advocate for themselves, the the doula or the end-of-life consultant will step in and be that liaison.
0: You mentioned your death cafe organisation, which in effect encourages people to talk about death and to talk about dying. Was it personal experience or was it just an observation that caused you to organise the death cafe idea?
2: That's an interesting question. I first ran a death cafe when I lived in Ballarat. I've always been fascinated by death and I was exposed to death at a very young age when I didn't have with the wherewithal to cope with it and I didn't have any support from the adults around me to help me cope with it. For example, I witnessed um, the death of a neighbour who lived a few doors down with us and he, he must have had a stroke and my parents rushed off and someone knocked on the back door. I was only about So I toddled down the back lane to see what was going on. No one knew I was witnessing my father trying to resuscitate this person and all the aftermath of that. So I guess that was a bit traumatic for me, and but it created a fascination with death. And as I was virtually the only child around in my, my parents' world in those days, I'm 62 now. In those days, people talked about illness a lot, and <laughs> and I actually witnessed, you know, other people dying. I saw someone fall over in the street and so forth. And so I've, I've actually always had a fascination, and when I was young, a fear of death. I have personally had a fear of death, and I've worked for it. And so when I learned about death cafes, now, death Café is a part of a worldwide movement. And I think from memory, I think we had about 400 in Australia recently. And I think throughout the world, there is approximately 9,000 every year. And in Australia, it's part of Dying to Know Day, which is the 8th of August every year. When I learned about the death Café, I thought, what a great idea. And because I've had a lot of a lot of professional working history and community development, I wanted to broaden people's horizons and open up the subject. And I recently ran it in town. And um, I had quite a good turn up um, at the, the first inaugural guest cafe in town. And it made me want to continue that. Um so I like the concept of opening people's minds and enabling them to accept the inevitable so that they can live a full life.
0: It is really interesting how, you know, death can affect people in different ways and from an early age, how it can kind of set a course for the rest of their life. And, and, and you know can kind of change the way they they view things and look at things, and I think yes. in many ways the impact of death can be really positive, or, or near death can be really positive on people. And you talked about how, when yes. you know when you experienced it as a as a as a young child, there might have been a difference in the way we kind of talked about it or dealt with it. Well, why do you think in this day and age we don't talk openly and honestly about death? But
2: we live in a society that borders more on denial. We're living in a a society that is, um, attached to grasping at things. When I say grasping at things, that's a Buddhist term. in actually, the accumulation of material goods, for example, that's grasping at things. It's also the media and it's also the funeral industry. Because people have lost touch with actual, the actual dying process. It's the medicalization of the dying person a hospitalisation of an ill person, whereas uh, like a 100 years ago, in my mother's time, she was born in 1916, she's not with us any longer, but in her time, someone would die and they would have them at home and they would have them in the front room and everyone would come and visit and they would pay their last respects and they would all have cups of tea and hang out with the dying person. And even... In Victorian times, before that, when someone would die, they would actually take photographs. They would sit the dying person up as though they were alive and they would take photographs with the family. And that's called memento mori. So it's having a memento of the dying person sitting up as large as life with the family. So it's quite bizarre. We're talking 100 years ago, 150 years ago, it was common. It was accepted as a natural part of life. But with the increase in the medicalisation of dying, with prolonging life, you you can't argue against the fact that most medical intervention is about prolonging life at at all costs. And so therefore, that has actually informed the attitude towards death. So we've got to prolong it to the greatest degree because We can't accept the inevitable because we're going to die. So there's many components to how it's progressed. So as I speak about this, we are also having the natural death movement come to the fore. We're now having a bit of a turnaround. We're having the natural death movement introducing things like green funerals. Having people dying at home is as much as possible, having people being taken home after death.
0: When you do talk about, you know, the different reasons that have kind of been uh, the, the barriers to that old-fashioned, open, honest embracing of the death, you know, what do you see as the benefits of talking about death? And, and what do you think should be discussed?
2: But Michael Looney says there are only two emotions, love and fear, love and fear. And if you really, really, really think about it, all the negative emotions are attached to fear. And when someone... We live in a, in, a, in a society full of anxiety, full of depression and anxiety. And when you talk to people about their anxiety around death, it's not so much death itself, but the, the, the way they're going to die. Are they going to suffer? And then what's going to leave their loved ones? In circles and so forth and so forth. You know, we're a strange species, humans. We really are. Because we're really the only species that, that ponder and worry and obsess over our health and our death. The benefits of bringing it out into the open to ease that fear, to reduce that fear, to normalise it. It's inevitable. It's normal. It's a process and from the day we are born, we, we get to a certain level, and then we start to deteriorate. It's normal. And the other benefit is to um, educate people, helping people to get information and know what's available to them. Preparing them is to help them develop skills to deal with time, to deal with their loved one. And their illness, and to have the presence of mind to deal effectively with it without the overwhelm, without the major stress, to deal with the grief, to deal with after death practices like separation of the body, whether it be cremation or burial, or the processes. One of the major benefits also is to help people. Realise how important it is, for example, to do an advanced care plan and or a will. Now, I can give you a personal example of that. Going back through my life, I've had the death of my mother, the death of my father, and I was their daughter. I was present while they were dying, when they died, and post-death. I've done that with countless animals, and I've done it with other people. And then in 2017, my beloved partner Peter was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I was with him from go to woe. And he, you know, he was ill for quite um, for quite a while before he was diagnosed. He couldn't find out what was wrong with him, but once he was diagnosed, he was dead within 10 weeks. My that was a baptism by fire for me. It was three hospitals and many procedures, and I was fortunate. I already had the skills, and I had most of the knowledge. I was able to handle it. But many people can't. I'll tell you what, I learned a hell of a lot as well. But, uh, and I actually had another, another friend, a doula friend, who's also a Buddhist, came on board and was there for us. So I know the value of having someone there. Just having someone there that you can go and sit
0: and talk to. You talked about advanced care directives, and and clearly your experiences are oh, yes. are profound. But I, I get the impression that even though they've they've become a lot more uh, a lot more legal, more recently, a lot more binding. Yes. If that's if that's the right word, I get the impression yes. a lot of the a lot of members of the community either a just don't know what the hell they are, or b don't kind of see the value or just are just lazy and it seems strange to me but clearly you're a person who sees the value in advance in advance care directives is that how you view them do you you view them quite valuable because i don't think people get the value do you do you agree that do you you kind of agree the community maybe don't get the value of them don't get the 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 worth of them and uh, i don't know
2: whether it's about the value i think it's tied into the fear of death you know our yeah, I know about it, but I'll, I'll, do it. I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. Now, that's what I was reading into before, a personal example of that, is when my partner, Peter, died. He was one of those people, oh, yes, I've got to redo my will, and oh, yes, I'll have to do an advanced care plan. Well, he never did. He died in test state. He died without a will, and as I said, he died really within 10 weeks, So, and he died without an advanced well, actually, he didn't have an advanced care plan when he fell ill. And I can't tell you how difficult it was for me to get things done without it. When you're diagnosed with cancer and you've got that sort of cancer and it's, um, and you're on put on painkillers and you're delirious, it's hard to get a person in a competent state to fill out Something like an advanced care plan, I would advocate for advanced care plans for the cows come home. And the reason I think that people don't do it is part of the, the death denial. Yeah. It's very hard for people to sit down and confront their death. You know, it actually, I've done it myself, and you really have to sit down and think about, oh, God, one day I'm going to die. Oh, my gosh. Some people can't handle that, a lot of people can't handle that, most of the population can't handle that. So, and you've got to actually think about things like, oh, so if I get a terminal illness, do I want to be resuscitated, do I want to be on life support if I have a stroke, do I want to be kept alive, do I want to die at home, do I want to die in hospital, do I care?
0: As you say too, you know a lot of people go, no, no, it doesn't matter because I know what she wants or I know what he wants. They told me. But as you've said, no. you, as you've said yourself, when you get into that moment where your partner is, you know, delirious, not with it, not you know, uh, yes. n- not coherent, uh, in in the yes. end, in the end, they're going to go to you. Well, mate, show me. You show me the directive, and we'll do it. You know, and that's that's the issue these days. So this kind of ex- well, right. this kind of fear and, and it, excuse
2: put together. We're actually assuming that people have people around them and they die. Yeah. There's a new um, organisation in Australia called No One Dies Alone and that is aimed at ensuring that no one dies alone although those unless they choose to. That's all very well to tell your nearest and dearest this is what you want if you have a healthy functioning relationship and you trust those people. That just brings out the best and the worst in people. Yes, Uh, absolutely. And there is no what how someone will behave when they're emotionally bereft uh, with a loved one dying. And actually, the worst behavior is quite often, I feel, when there's unresolved issues between the dying person and, and the person that's behaving badly or there's, no respect in the family. Like with Peter, for example, I actually did my utmost to fill out an advanced care plan with him and actually asked for the medication to be reduced so that I could sit with a social worker and the advanced care people with him to fill it out because you can't fill out... You cannot sign an advanced care plan if you're not stand-competent and a doctor has to witness the help. The person has to be competent, and that's why it's so important to do it when you are competent, when you're not ill, when you're not dying. And and so I can't tell you how onerous that was. Trying to it took us two hours. Now I filled out my own, and it, I sat down with my son because I thought he's um, guardian for his own father. I thought it would be a good experience for him to go to an advanced care plan with me. And and that took, you know, an hour and a half. I actually thought, think it might have taken long, longer with Peter. And I've been, been there where people have all been on board prior to the death and post death. It all goes awry because he, I've seen people just fall apart and they just backtrack on what they're saying. And, and you know, they, so to me, it's so incredibly important to respect the person's wishes and do what they have asked for, within reason. Absolutely, but, that
0: just yeah. shows the the absolute importance of everyone taking seriously the advanced care directives for their own lives for, for control. And it kind of leads into a, a thing I'd love to get your thoughts on, which is assisted dying laws.
2: What do you? Yes.
0: How do you feel about them? What do you think about them?
2: I think they're
0: great. <laughs> and why is they're that?
2: Great, you should. I I think. It's a human right to decide that you don't want to continue suffering. I think Victoria, I'm so proud, Um, this is the one thing I'm proud of, is to be a Victorian, to have our assisted dying lawyers be the first state in Australia to introduce them. Of course, unless you've worked with people that are dying, unless you've seen the suffering, my partner, died from one of the worst cancers you can have. It was esophageal cancer, and it's incredibly painful, sure. and am During that process, I rang up Rodney Stein, who runs Stein with Dignity in Victoria, and he's the head of this organisation. And I actually spoke with him on the phone several times, and he said to me, "With this type of cancer, Full sedation and full medication, so the person that isn't conscious, so they, you know, they're not suffering. So when Peter was diagnosed, the first thing he said to me was, "Where can I get my hands on some But he got sick that quick, so nothing could be done. We're talking about extreme cases, and we've already had one case in Victoria of the uh, the woman that had cancer. And the criteria for ending your life in Victoria is quite stringent. And, it, you know, there's a whole lot of processes you have to go through. So, And people in that stage of illness, if you go back to the 104-year-old man that had to go to Switzerland to die, I mean, how ridiculous is that? He's 104. He had to fly to Switzerland to end his life. I'm just all for it. Being, living in Victoria whatever happens for me down the track. I want, to, I want to have that control over my life. I want to be able to say, right, that's enough.
0: You've obviously talked about, you know, the way the community view death and not talking about it, but what we ha- haven't really spoken about is from your point of view, yep. how do you actually view death?
2: That's a big question.
0: I don't necessarily mean thereafter, but the process of death. I mean, yep. you've used phrases so far like, it's just a natural, normal part of right. living. Is that is that yes. is that in effect how you how you view death as kind of a just a, a matter of fact kind of natural First part of
2: you? It. Well, it's not that matter of fact. Not, you know, I don't particularly want to die, <laughs> <laughs> only because I've got. I I live a very rich life, and I love it. And who wants to give up that? So a lot of that the dying stuff is you know you're letting go of people you're letting go of your life you're letting go of things you've enjoyed. Personally I've actually written five articles now they were essays and I've turned them into articles and one of them is called The Mindful Death. How do I view death? Well if I live my life mindfully which I try to do 24-7 then I expect to be, I will die mindfully. Now, you can't account for being hit on the head by a tree because you don't have much time to be mindful. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, by the way, I have macabre, I, I've got a macabre sense of humour. <laughs> I think you need to keep the humour to everything.
0: Yes, Seriously. I Agree.
2: So, my attitude to death has changed a lot from when I was young, as I was quite fearful, And so I've worked through a lot of stuff. And now my attitude, I think you get seasoned. I think as you get older, well, I have become more accepted. And you get seasoned to the changes in your body and the way you age. If I was to just naturally age and die of old age, then I think I would do it gracefully. That would be my ideal, gracefully and mind- mindfully. I have in my own advanced care plan that I'd like to be as conscious as possible. And that means if I was in pain, I wouldn't want to be on painkillers that make me delirious. Now, that's a very tricky one because most painkillers will put people to sleep and, you know, it slows their breathing down, basically. So that, that is a tricky one. People talk about dying with dignity, and I don't know about what that means. I, I think it's important for me, and I would like to say it for other people that their choices are honoured and they have a choice. That they're not just a guinea pig for the medicalisation of death and dying. That they know they have choices. They can say no to certain treatments. I witnessed Peter die. And nurses came up oh, and said he died with dignity and I and I thought to myself, What a load of rubbish. <laughs> he went out screaming. He didn't he he was angry. He was angry. He he didn't like what was happening to him. I do believe that there is an essence for a soul that that goes on a conscious, sentient being, that consciousness has got to go somewhere. And if it goes calmly, then that's the most ideal. And with my parents, I tried to do that with both of them, to be with them and send them off in a good state of mind, a state of consciousness. So that is important to me.
0: Finally, I really wanted to get your uh, your thoughts on what you think the most important changes are that we as a community need to make just regarding how we handle death and dying. What are the kind of the key changes? Uh, clearly, I think one of them is we we really need to embrace advanced care directives and how you know we'll be really clear on how we, we want to die. But what do you think are the the kind of the important changes with the community needs to to make?
2: I think we need to keep pushing the death cafe. It's not just death cafes. I'm going to no day. There's a whole ton of events going on. There was, for example, in the Yarra Rangers, there was the Yarra Rangers Death Expo. For the community to keep running events like that to, to bring people's awareness up. And you know, it's amazing what, when you start talking to people, what they'll come out with. So it's just trying to open a dialogue and get people to, because people are quite isolated, I find, that, that they're in their homes, they're living their lives, they're not interacting outside of their comfort zone. And they've got all these concerns and worries, and they, they don't know that they can talk about it. So I think the community, the people in the community like me, running these events, this is important. Um, I think education for people, um, so that they learn, people know and develop the skills around what their choices are, because they need to know what their choices are. They need to watch things like the ABC four corners on the investigation into the funeral industry. They need to be conscious of what's going on around them, what what's available to them, what choices they can make, and not be dictated to by funeral directors. They need to know that there's other possibilities. And I think the only way to do that is by keeping on running events, having it in the media. I mean, you know the media's got a lot of clout. This podcast, I hope, I can spread it through, like we have a, a Deaf School of Australia network. There's over 2,000 people in it. So spreading it through social media is important. There's a lot of um, deaf information on Facebook and social media. I think that's incredibly important. Of course, the voluntary assisted dying laws in Victoria have brought it into the consciousness. So it's keeping, bringing it into people's consciousness constantly and normalising so there's a trend starting where people are making it more easier for people to die at home there's um, private hospices and houses being set up all over the country at the moment where people can go to die in a nice setting so there's, there's starting to be a trend away from the hospitals and you know to die in a cancer ward in a hospital is not a very pleasant thing, and I tell you what, in the, if you believe in the soul or the spirit, you don't want to go there. You know, I mean, if you had the choice between dying in a sterile one room box, medicalized up to the, your eyeballs, or dying beside a window looking out over a forest, what would you choose? Absolutely.
0: Um, it's obviously a, a, an extremely thought-provoking conversation we've had and it's, it's been absolutely uh, fascinating and I really do uh, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for chatting to me about
2: it. That's my pleasure. It's a big subject, so I hope we've um, covered some
0: of it. That was qualified counsellor, therapist and death doula, Ajanta Judd. Intensely Inquisitive. And thank you for listening to this episode of Intensely Inquisitive. My hope is that it's empowered you in some way, be that through learning new things or inspiring you to learn more or simply sparking interesting, deeper conversations. I can't wait to continue this conversation with you, so feel free to like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook and go to my website, orionkelly.com.au. That's O-R-I-O-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com.au. And if there's a topic or question you'd like me to explore in an upcoming episode of Intensely Inquisitive, well, drop me a message at my website, orionkelly.com.au, or you can post it on the Orion Kelly Facebook page. Until next time, keep asking questions. Thanks for listening to Intensely Inquisitive with Orion Kelly. For more episodes and to stay up to date, like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook.